Unlike Martin Luther, who didn't much like the book of James and who famously called it a right straw epistle, and uh, less famously, there's actually a statement where he says there are times when he has thought of throwing Jimmy in the fire, uh, which is a pretty strong statement. Apparently, he is alluding to someone who had statues of the apostles and they were wooden and he used them to stoke a fire when uh, some important person came and visited him. Uh, but in any event, it reflects uh, Martin Luther's opinion that James doesn't have much of the gospel in it. And in fact, he thought because of his interpretation of James chapter 2 and what is said there about faith and works that James was actually antagonistic to the true gospel as taught by Paul and other books within the, the New Testament. But I love James. I've always loved James. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And I wonder if there are others here. Is there anyone for whom it's one of your favorite books? Okay, we got a few people with hands up. Uh, why? Why do you like James? Practicality, okay, yeah. James is extremely practical. And in fact, I guess one of the things that someone like Luther might not like about it is that it doesn't have much theology or theoretical kind of material like, say, a book of Romans would have or even a book of Galatians would have, but it has a great deal of concrete practical advice about everyday life. What else? Is everyone that likes James is the same reason? Okay. And, and there, there are probably um, many of us who could maybe not recite the verse, but cite particular verses in James, like the verse, true religion is what? Undefiled. <laughs> true and undefiled is, is what? What do you do? Take care of the widows and the orphans. Take care of the widows and the orphans. Keep from the world. And keep oneself unspotted from the world. So yes. So, so there are certain things that we can just say true religion is, and then everybody immediately thinks of James. I was looking at a book earlier today about uh, James, and he had a little section in there of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. And he claimed that after the Gettysburg Address, it was maybe Lincoln's most famous speech. I don't know about that because I didn't recognize too much of it. But uh, he alluded to James, particularly to caring for widows and for orphans. And it was really on everybody's mind near the end of the Civil War. That was a very important time to cite that passage. We didn't directly cite it, but he was clearly referring to it. We will uh, we'll reflect on the fact that James uh, was put to death in A.D. 62, which means there's not any good chance of it being after that date. And so it has to be written at least by the 50s, maybe even in the 40s. It could even be written in the 30s. There's not much in the book that would help us to kind of nail it down and say it has to be at least this point in the history of our early Christianity. So it's a, it's a very early book, and it reflects uh, a person who was a leader of the church in Jerusalem, 
of, of the first big megachurch in Christianity. Yes? I like uh, chapter 5 since I'm a poor person where he says, woe unto you rich people. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So he does have some very strong statements to make about the rich. And he has some very strong statements to make about uh, favoritism that we might show to those who have more or who are the more elite people and uh, rather calls for attention to those who are poor, who are looked down upon. Jay. Recently, I had a friend who was really sick and in the hospital, and I was really worried about him, so I used the good old uh, phone to request several people to pray for him. And uh, one is a, a friend of mine who's a Presbyterian minister here in town, and shortly after I got a message back that he had prayed for this person, I got to the hospital, and the person was much better. And so I texted him and said, from now on, you're going to be the first person I ask to pray for someone. And he says, well, I like to think that I am a part of James 5:16b. And <laughs> 5:16, not the whole verse, but B. B. So I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to admit off the top of my head. You had to look it up, I didn't you? look it up. And we're used to the, uh, the King James where I think it says, the effectual prayer of a righteous person availeth much. The uh, NIV says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's nice, but it's not as nice as availeth much. <laughs> availeth much sticks in the brain a little better. Or maybe it's just because it stuck in our brain when we were young yeah. and it stayed there all the time since then. Okay. I'm sure you're going to cover it. The 14th verse of the same chapter. Yes. What you talk about calling the elders? Is that where that is? Yes. And I know of specific occasions, and Jay could tell you about, our elders could tell you about specific occasions. Uh, going back many years, even, um, I've, I've been here 35 years, and I think I could point to an occasion that was within the first few years that I was here. A number of occasions on which people have uh, called for the elders to come and to pray over them. As I remember, our biggest question was, what kind of oil do you use? Yes, yes. You know, people ask that question, but what difference does it make? What, what difference? Well, yeah. the answer. We use all oil. Olive yeah. oil is the answer. I'll tell you what we use. Olive oil. Okay. I, I bet that is the most common answer to use olive oil because you think of that. <laughs> you think of olive oil as being easily available during biblical times and biblical areas. So, yes. And prayed over her. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there's some very solid practical advice that we probably don't see followed every day. We see it followed on occasion, but there's uh, some very concrete pieces of advice and information in this book. I don't remember the exact number, but I read earlier today that there's something like 60 imperative verbs, that's command verbs, in the roughly 108 verses. So it's more than half of the verses 
have a command or a, a direction within them. And that's part of what we love about the book of James. I want to talk a bit about James himself. In fact, uh, I'd like that to be a major focus of what we do tonight. We will do some stuff with the overall uh, sort of structure and impact of the book of James tonight. But for a while here, I just want to talk about James. <coughs> Let's look at Mark chapter 6, which has a list of Jesus' brothers, at least four of them by name, and maybe there were only four, and then mentions that he had sisters. And so in chapter 6 and verse 3, when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, the people say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph? You may have Josez. Uh, those are, that's a different spelling of Joseph. Uh, Judas and Simon. And aren't his sisters here with us? So there's four brothers who are listed, and James is listed first. So what, what do you think people will speculate as to why he's listed first? There's a couple of different reasons, and nobody knows for sure. He could be the oldest. And so that, that's a really common opinion, that he's the oldest of Jesus' brothers. And then what would be the other fairly obvious opinion? Yeah, best known of the brothers. In that case, from our standpoint, we'd say James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon, because we don't know anything about Joseph and Simon. We would, we would put Jude in second place in that case. But uh, it could be that it's because he's older. It could be that, uh, that it's uh, because he was a major leader. What do we know about Jesus' relationship with his brothers during his ministry? Was it good? Was it bad? Yes. There was a time when they were getting ready to go to the festival in Jerusalem. They said, let's just go and show yourself there. But the gospel uh, provider said the brothers didn't believe in Jesus. Yeah, that's in John chapter 7 that Mike has uh, pointed us to. And uh, so this is starting in about verse 3. They say, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then John says... For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That's the strongest, clearest statement that we have uh, in the New Testament that they didn't believe. Um, you have any speculations as to why they didn't believe in him? Yes, Mary. That, that's a good point. Maybe, maybe if he did something, or maybe uh, if we're going to speculate, we could speculate jealousy as a possible 
motive? Jeremiah had the same problem that Jesus did. His family was hostile to him. In fact, they may have been participating in trying to kill him. So, when Jesus says about the prophet, he's not honoring his own hometown. Yeah. Share those same things. We are uh, in Jay's and my class on Sunday mornings. We're talking about Joseph right now. And Joseph had a little problem with his brothers. But on the other hand, we probably don't picture Jesus as waking up and saying, look, guys, I had a dream last night, and all of y'all bowed down to me. Uh, it, and And... Presumably, Joseph or Mary don't present Jesus with a coat of many colors. They don't give it to anybody else in family. Uh, they, uh, they were sent at one time to take him home because he was, they thought he had lost his mind. Okay. The family was trying to get him away from that because the things he was saying didn't make sense to him. Yeah, look at Mark chapter 3. The, the passage that uh, Mike led us to is the clearest statement that they don't believe in him. Mark chapter 3 is the, the incident that uh, Freddie's leading us to. And here in verse 20 and 21, we're told Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not able to eat. And when his family... You may have a little more literal translation. Those who are near to him or those who are close to him. Most interpreters think the, the NIV is right in, in interpreting that as referring to his family. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, but they said, he's out of his mind. And another reason to believe this is his family is because they get there in verse 31. We have uh, the uh, scribes interacting with Jesus between verse 21 and 31. But in 31, we're told, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call for him. Now, what Jesus says at this point is probably not going to endure him, endear him to them. A crowd was sitting around them, and he told them, they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked around and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The thing that really kind of makes me wonder about this whole story is the mother. Because you know that Mary has known from his birth, that something about this child. And uh, if, if the rest of them think he's crazy, you wonder if Mary does. And you kind of wonder if maybe Mary goes along. You know, the brothers and the sisters are all going. They all think he's beside himself. And Mary goes along. It isn't, it isn't clear. Or is it even possible that Mary has doubts about him at this point? Oh, not at all. Not at all. No, I'm, I'm suggesting that it's odd that his mother goes. It doesn't seem that odd that the brothers and sisters go. 
and we're, we're told they don't believe in him anyway. But you think Mary has to believe. You just think, how can Mary not believe? Um, maybe, maybe she's got some doubts at this point. Maybe his behavior is uh, somehow making her worry about him. I mean, because they think he's out of his mind doesn't mean they dislike him when they go to try to get him. It could be that they think, well, we really need to get our brother back here and kind of under control of the family and uh, control the way he's behaving. But in any event, this is another, this is the second closest place that we have in the Gospels. And it indicates there was a rift between Jesus and at least his brothers and sisters. But I think it's a, an interesting question around the, the concept of faith. Um, Soren Kierkegaard uh, said that, you know, how we make the statement, if we only could actually see Jesus face to face, it'd be easier to believe in him. And Kierkegaard uh, challenged that. He said it would be harder if you actually saw him as a human being. And so here are these people who grew up with him and they somehow stumbled in their faith. And I think that we, we sometimes don't recognize that ch faith can be a challenge to people. And when we try to bring other people along, we need to be patient with them because even his family stumbled at faith. That's a, that's a good point. And we, we tend to think, I think often, <laughs> that if we could just see him, see him do a miracle or two, but we have lots of evidence of people who did that all the time and didn't believe. And, the, and some of the strongest in that were the closest to him. His hometown neighbors, his brothers, and his sisters. I'm still kind of reluctant to say his mother, but maybe. I mean, I know she's, I, I totally believe this story happened. I know she goes along with them to go get him. If you could ask her, would she say, I think he's crazy. We need to go do something about him. Or would she say, well, all the family's going and I need to be there to try to buffer this situation or whatever. Yes. It, it seems to me, though, that Mary had to have known he could do that because she had confidence in him when he performed his first public miracle. She did. And she told them to do what he said. So to me, it was obvious that she knew he had these powers. Yeah, at Cana of Galilee, they have the weirdest conversation. She says, uh, we need some wine. We're running out. And he says, why are you bothering me about that? It's not my problem. And she says, do whatever he tells you to do. We'll have some wine. It's a, it's a very interesting father, uh, mother-son dynamic that goes on in that particular conversation. It, it points to the power of a paradigm. <coughs> if you've grown up thinking this is the way it's going to be, this mm -hmm. is the way it's going to when when, when it, the time comes, all of those kinds of prophecies are fulfilled. The paradigm was that it would be kind of a, a spiritual giant that was... Uh, Full of, I mean, full of prophecy, full of uh, power, and exhibited right. it all the time. And uh, and uh, I think 
that uh, Mary might have said, bless your heart, time or two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, a, uh, and a big military leader. And it, you don't know how much for sure of that common paradigm, the brothers, the sisters, the people in the hometown Mary herself have bought into, and he doesn't do quite what they expect him to do. Yeah. So that's that's a very good point. Is that and we're affected the same way. We have certain paradigms. It's going to be this way. It's got to be this way. And if it's not, then often we don't uh, change very easily. Yeah. You know, I have to feel that she was just being a mother, and I mean, one of our girls still left her other daughter was losing her mind and was going to confront her. We would definitely be there. We'd go. Yeah. We're, we're going to go work with this situation. So I think she's just being a good mother. Yeah. That 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 kind of makes sense to me as uh, as one of the angles for looking at this. Now there there's one other place in Jesus' life that I think indirectly indicates that things aren't what they should be uh, with the brothers and the sisters. And this happens on the cross. On the cross, when Jesus says, someone needs to take care of mama, who is it? John. John. So James, Jude, Joseph, Simon, and the sisters, at least two, they all get passed over. And Jesus says, behold your mother, behold your son. And from that point, John takes her in, takes care of her. That, that doesn't sound right if everything was right at that point between Jesus and his brothers and sisters or even maybe between his mother and his brothers and sisters. Alan, perhaps half of Christian believers in the world would hold on to the perpetual virginity of Mary, which solves your problem at the cross of John taking care of Mary. Because of the cousins. So how do you justify that idea that makes brothers of Jesus impossible? And what do you do with the Mark verses? Yeah, the, 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 uh, the issue there is, of course, that you uh, attribute to Mary perpetual virginity and say that she is never anything but a virgin and she doesn't bear any other children. And so that sort of creates a situation in which you have to figure out some way to deal with the brothers and the sisters other than them being Mary's. And there's, uh, there's basically two ways of doing that. One is to say they were cousins. And if they're cousins, the, the problem with that is that the word used for the brothers and the sisters is just the everyday word for the brothers and sisters. There are some very rare occurrences where this word could be used for broader family and could include cousins, but it wouldn't be the normal way to think about it. The normal way to think about the word is to be brothers and sisters. And the other way to do it is to suggest that Joseph already had children 
who aren't mentioned when he marries Mary. So Mary's his second wife or third wife, and he has children already, and all these brothers and sisters are half brothers and sisters to Jesus, and Mary remains a virgin, all the other children are already there. That's a less common uh, explanation, but it's an explanation that would be uh, given by some. Of course, the, the more obvious explanation is just that, uh, that Mary doesn't remain a perpetual virgin. Uh, but that uh, she does have these other children who are brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, all this is going to change. So all the way until Jesus is on the cross and dying, it doesn't look like there's ever kind of a, a session where he and his brothers make up and uh, where, where they get on board with who Jesus is and what he's doing. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is where Paul recites the appearances of Jesus. So <clears throat> he is on, in verse 4, he was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve, so then to the whole group. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me. Generally, there, there are about four or five Jameses in the New Testament. So you could have James, the son of Zebedee, who died at the latest by about A.D. 44. It's put to death by, I think it's Herod Agrippa II. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, another apostle that we never hear anything else about. You have James, the father of Judas, the other Judas among the apostles. So you have several Jameses connected uh, with the apostles. But the only James it would seem like in the New Testament who can be just James, and you can refer to him as just James, you don't have to attach anything else to his name to explain who it is, would seem to be the most famous James. And clearly the most famous James turns out to be Jesus' brother. And so... Virtually everyone that I'm aware of thinks that Paul's talking about Jesus' brother here. So sometime, one would think fairly soon after his resurrection appears in the start, he appears to Peter, he appears to the apostles. some point he appears to 500 people at once. And then before he appears to Paul, which is going to be on down the road a little bit in terms of time, at some point in there, he appears to James. And we might think that's the point that everything starts to switch, is that uh, he appears to James. And in fact, it presumably is pretty early because look at Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, James is named specifically, but in verses 12 and following, 
we're told that um, the apostles and others got together and went into an upstairs room where they were staying. Verse 13b, those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew. Now that's James, the son of Zebedee. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, uh, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. we got a bunch of Jameses mentioned all together there, but they're none of them are James, Jesus' brother. They all joined together in constantly in prayer, along with the women, and here it comes, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So how soon does it have to be? that the change takes place. When is the day of Pentecost? 50, 50 days past the Passover, is that right? So we got a little over a month, we got close to two months, and apparently they're all gathering for a while, and uh, uh, they're gathering at least uh, during that period from Jesus uh, going, uh, Jesus being exalted to heaven, and then the 10-day period after the 40 days uh, before Pentecost, the brothers are there. Could be the sisters are there too. So something's changed. And it, it seems fairly likely that the thing that would change here would be that uh, James saw Jesus, maybe some of the others, raised from the dead. The other miracles he worked apparently didn't convince him. But uh, being raised from the dead, appearing, does uh, make a big difference. And then James is there from the beginning at this point. Now look at uh, chapter 12 of Acts. See how our time is going here. Chapter 12 and verse 17. Well, I'll just quickly tell you what that story is. That's the one where Peter gets released and he goes to the house of John Mark's mother. And, uh, you know, they don't think it's really him that comes to the door. But he asks about James. At verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. He described how the Lord brought him out of prison tell James and the other brothers and sisters. So I guess the sisters are in now too about this. He said, and then he left for another place. And so James seems to be, seems to kind of take a pre preeminence here. None of the other brothers named. The sisters are still not named, but James is specifically named. And then we go on to chapter 15. In chapter 15, there's a big conference. And the issue is whether or not they're going to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. And uh, James is the one, after hearing Peter and Paul each get up and give their presentations, James the one who sort of offers the ultimate solution. We should only require these Gentiles to do these things that are specified in Leviticus for the Gentiles living among the people of Israel, and they send out the letter. But James is the one who speaks up, beginning in uh, verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. 
Simon has described to us and so forth and goes on and then says in verse 19, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And everyone ends up going along with him, except for the, the Pharisee group that doesn't go along with the decision, but the majority go along with his decision. Then look in chapter 20, actually 21. Paul makes his journey back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And when he comes there, he ends up encountering James. Verse 17, we arrived at Jerusalem. The brothers and sisters received us warmly. And the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. And all the elders were present. And Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's telling them about especially the things that happened on the third missionary journey. And there James gives Paul some advice. What's he telling me I'll do? Does anybody remember? Because it's really weird. James says, we got four guys here that have, he doesn't say Nazarite vow, but that appears to be what they've taken. They've taken Nazarite vows for a temporary period. They're going to cut their hair. When they do that, they're going to go to the temple and offer the sacrifices that are in connection with the Nazarite vow. Now, this is not a sin offering they're going to make. It's kind of a, a vow offering in connection with the vow that they've made. It signifies the end of the vow. And he tells Paul, you need to pay for the animals and you need to go along with them. Why would he want Paul to do that? Yeah, because the general thinking about Paul is that he wasn't living like a Jew anymore. He had forsaken all the Jewish customs and practices but James, who had been in Jerusalem, at this point, um, he had been there 25 years or more as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, so we're, we're now at about 58 A.D. He had been a leader in the church in Jerusalem, apparently from the earliest days there. And he says there are thousands of Jewish Christians that live according to various Jewish practices, and they've heard bad things about you, Paul. Uh, some people think Paul shouldn't have taken James' advice, that that was a bad idea. I, I don't think Luke thinks that. Luke seem, seems to think that, uh, that Paul did the right thing by taking James' advice to show that, in fact, he still, he took a Nazarite vow himself when he was back in Corinth. And remember him cutting his hair when he gets to Sincrea and ending the Nazarite vow. So James is a very Jewish Christian. He's kind of, uh, he stayed in the land of Palestine for his whole life. And he's going to be killed in AD 62. That's about four years after Paul goes to Jerusalem. After this event, James is going to be put to death by the high priest. The guy's name is Ananus II. 
And there happened to be a little interval where there wasn't a governor like Pilate governing. One guy stopped and another guy was coming, but he hadn't got there yet. And the high priest said, this is my chance to do what I want. I want to put to death some of these Christians. And the one he chose to be the chief example is James. And, and we find this story in Josephus, who's a Jewish historian. He tells us about James's death. He also says that most of the Jews who were faithful and fair disagreed with Ananus. And he said that when the next governor got there, he deposed Ananus. He said, you're not going to be high priest anymore. You shouldn't have done that. So it wasn't a generally approved uh, way of going about things, but, uh, but it was the end of James' life. So this kind of surveys James' life for us. So James is kind of like Peter in a way in that, well, he, he didn't just deny Jesus right near the end of his life. He denied Jesus his whole ministry. But then he had a change. And then just like Peter... He became a leader, a major leader in the church who had been a significant opponent of Jesus for all of Jesus' life. And it's, it's that guy that writes this book. Any more comments about James? And there's a little video I want us to see that just kind of surveys the, uh, the book of James and forms an introduction to how we're going to get into the book and what we're going to do with it next week. We, we watch this video again, and you can watch this video to your heart's content. Just look up the Bible Project. Uh, look up the uh, books of the Bible there and go to James and click on it. And only just takes eight minutes to watch it. Uh, the one thing that I hope you'll remember about the video towards next week and the future of our class is that the first chapter basically introduces short sayings, short brief maxims that then are carried out more fully by maybe half chapter or so, like essays in the rest of the book, chapters two through five. So as you read James this week, think about that first chapter and look at how it introduces a lot of what you see in chapters 2 through 5. We'll jump into James next week. See you later.